the title of my message this morning is, He is Coming Back. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 19. And I, I'm hoping to not just uh, read through this text, but also show you other places in the Bible where we uh, have text that talks about, Bible verses that talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament and New Testament alike. So um, this is not, um, I'm not going to read these because there's a lot of them actually, uh, but Kyler will be writing them down or uh, putting them in the message box. You can go to Isaiah, uh, and this is just in your own time. You can write them down now, or you can look at them after the sermon today. But Isaiah chapter 2, specifically verses 10 through 22, talks about the second coming of Christ. You, you, you may not have thought of that before if you've read that, but hopefully today read these verses in the context of his second coming. Another area is Isaiah 24, verses 1 through 23, really, the, the, whole, the whole chapter there. In the New Testament, we talked about this about three or four weeks ago in Matthew chapter 24, but specifically the actual second coming of Christ is in Matthew 24, verses 26 through 31. And this is a, a one that you may not have thought of before. It's, there's more, I believe anyways, more than one place in the book of Revelation where it talks about the second coming of Jesus. And you can actually look at Revelation chapter 6, verse 15 and 16. I know this is in regards to the sixth seal judgment. But could it be after looking at Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah 24, Matthew 24, that you can see where Revelation chapter 6, verse 15 and 16, actually correlates with these other verses and may refer to the second coming of Christ. So again, Pastor Kyler will be writing these verses down um, in the message box below uh, this post as we're going, because again, like the last number of Sundays, I have a lot of scriptures. It's just the way it works, and I'm going to do my best to talk fast. But anyways, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 19. Uh, the first 10 verses of Revela Revelation chapter 19 is really the, the preparation for the second coming of Christ. I mean, within this text, in verses 1 through 10, you have the marriage supper of the Lamb, you have these songs, all this stuff as people are rejoicing in heaven that Jesus is coming back. I was trying to think of how, how could you relate it today. It would be like having the, the pep rally before the big game. You know how you all get together, you all celebrate, you all do things to, to, to build each other up, and then you go out and play the game. But in this case, it's the rally before the battle, before the second coming. And so drop down to Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. And the last part of that verse, something that stood out to me that I never really thought of before, but it applies to what we've been talking about, is it says in the last part of Revelation 19.10, it says, For the essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness of Jesus. You know, again, I've said a third of the Bible is prophetic. Prophetic writings. And everything that has to do with prophecy is giving a witness of Jesus. It's testifying of who he is, what his character is like, how he's going to come, what his ministry is. All of this shows us who Jesus is. And the book of Revelation, as you may know, is actually the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's showing us who he is, his character, his nature. It's a witness of him. He is the Messiah. So we should read our Bibles to know Jesus better. And as we look at prophecy, it's not just to know what's to come in the future, but it's that we might know Jesus better. In John chapter 5, verse 39 and 40, it says, You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me, yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. So when you read your Bibles, if you uh, use our, our, our Bible track reading plan, read your Bibles to know God more. 
Not to get things necessarily, but if anything, just to get more of him. That's, that's extra. Okay. So everything in the Bible points to Jesus. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, we, we've mentioned this a number of times in this series. It says that those who read this prophecy are blessed. That when you, read, when you read and study the prophetic books of the Bible, it is a blessing to you. Because it doesn't just prepare you for what's to come, but it, it, it does. It shows you who Jesus is in our lives. So we have prophecy all throughout the Bible. We've talked about this as well, how there are over 300 prophecies that talk about the first coming of Jesus. We talked about that last week in the 70 weeks of Daniel. But do you realize there is actually five times as many prophecies in the Bible that talk about the second coming of Jesus? In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, we, 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 we get this first part of this all the time in our Christmas cards, right? It says in Isaiah 9, 6, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. And that's talking about the first coming of Jesus. When he came to this world as a baby, wrapped up in swaddling clothes, lived his life, then he died on the cross for our sins. But now think of the rest of this passage in the context of his second coming. The government will rest on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That seems to make a lot more sense in re reference to his second coming than how he came in his first coming. His government and his peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all of eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord, the commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. In the second coming of Christ, he will make this happen happen. This prophecy will be completely fulfilled. Did you know that most prophecy passages about the coming of Jesus are about his second coming? I think I just said that, but I'll say it again. And they all witness of who Jesus is. Today, as we were talking about his second coming, it's about knowing not just not when he comes necessarily, but how he is coming. The first time Jesus came, it was as a lamb. The Bible says he came as a lamb to the slaughter. He was that sacrificial lamb where his blood was shed for us in our place. But how does he come the second time? He comes as a lion. I don't know about you, but I don't know any lions that just bow down and take it easy. Lions are fierce. They're, well, I'll just say ferocious. You know, same thing. When Jesus came to the world the first time, it was to do business. It was to offer salvation to everyone for their sins. And you know what? The second time that Jesus comes, it will also be to do business. But it's, to, it's, gonna, it's going to be to save the planet and to judge those who are still on it. It is all going to come back under his control at this time. You know, we've all waited for this for a long time. We, we've, we've wanted Jesus to come back. And here in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, and we'll be dropping down from there this morning, that is what is so exciting about this. I love this passage because it talks about who Jesus is and how he is going to come back and how he's going to put things into order the way they should be. He's going to say this, It is time for sin, for death, for destruction, for the chaos to stop. I'm going to stop it. Think about this right now. There are so many defiling acts that people commit, that governments commit, that society commits, sicknesses, COVID-19, distress, death, hunger, all these things. 
It's all over the planet. But when Jesus comes back, he's going to say, I'm done with this. No more. It stops now. As soon as he puts his foot on the Mount of Olives and it, and it cracks, as it talks about in Zechariah chapter 14, it's over. Amen. And a new reign will begin, the reign of Christ. This happens at the end of the tribulation period. Now, you may think, well, pastor, you've been talking about end time stuff. We never talked about all the good stuff in the seven years. No, you can do that on your own time, or maybe I'll get back to it later this year. But we, we've talked about the rapture of the church. We've talked about how long the tribulation period is. We've talked about all these things. But again, I want to focus on the essence of who Jesus is and not just what takes place. We know he's our Savior, our Messiah. And at this point, when he comes back a second time, everybody has had the opportunity to accept him as Savior, accept him as the Messiah, accept him as Lord. But now he's coming back. He's not asking questions. He's giving orders. He's coming back as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. So let's look at Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. And we're just going to go verse by verse through this and uh, see where we end up. Could be one o'clock. It won't. Just keep watching. <laughs> Don't hit stop yet. Keep watching. Okay. So Revelation 19, verse 11 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages war, or wages righteous war. So we are looking at the second coming. But this coming of Jesus. Is great. I'm sorry, my notes are messed up here. Oh, I should ask my question first. What does this look like? I mean, you think about this. We, we read this verse. What does it look like when Jesus comes back? Well, I mentioned Revelation chapter 6. Let's look down at this right now. I'm going to actually start in verse 14. It says, The sky was rolled up like a scroll. Now, again, just imagine with me here, give me a little bit of uh, leeway. Imagine the sky being rolled up like a scroll, and then you see Jesus coming. Now, again, just a little more imagery. If you're at home right now, you can look out your window, and as far as I can see, the sky is nice and bright and blue. No, not a cloud in the sky. Imagine that you look up, and that blue sky just parts. And you can see the throne room of God and Jesus coming on a horse, breaking through that, with his armies behind him, who were us, coming down to take control of the world. So again, Revelation 6, verse 14, says, The sky was rolled up like a scroll, and all the mountains and the islands were moved from their places. Then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers of the generals, the wealthy, the powerful, and every slave and free person, all hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Why would they do that? Because he's coming back as a lion. He's coming back as the king of kings. He's coming back as the conqueror. Fall on us and hide us from the place and hide, fall on us, fall and hide us from the face of the one who is on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of wrath, of their wrath has come. And who is able to survive? So again, uh, Pastor Kyler put the first verses on, on the, the Facebook uh, feed in Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 24, and Matthew chapter 24, Revelation chapter 6. Read those in time after this message and imagine it and see it in the context of the coming of Christ the second time. So God splits the sky open. He rolls it back 
and he comes. I think that's awesome. Jesus is coming. So a white horse, why is that a white horse? It's a symbol of victory. Jesus riding a white horse shows he is the victorious, conquering king coming back to the earth. When he comes back, the second coming, the Bible talks about when he comes, and it'll be at this thing called the Battle of Armageddon. We've all probably heard of Armageddon, but it's an actual real battle that will take place that we read about in the Bible. And the reason why this is taking place is not just men warring against men, but it's actually men warring against men in hopes of stopping Jesus from coming back. Because this, this text is available. You, you believe it or not, Satan, who influences the Antichrist, who, who literally inhabits him, knows that Jesus is coming back. And he wants to stop that. And how better a way to stop it than to destroy everything? Because Satan is known as the destroyer. And so he's trying to destroy the world, and Jesus is saying, no. This isn't going to happen. We're done. So just thinking about this, I mean, Satan has a purpose for everything. God has purposes for us. God has good things for us. The Bible says that, that, that Jesus came to give us life and all this fullness, but Satan's purpose is to kill, to steal, and to destroy. That's John 10.10. 10. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, it says, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. So this is, a, this is a battle between mankind, but Satan is the one who's behind it. Okay? I'm going to digress just a little bit. Uh, in Revelation chapter 16, we have the bold judgments. And in the sixth bold judgment... It's in uh, Revelation 16, verses 13 and 14. We actually get a little glimpse of how there's a satanic influence on world leaders and world armies. It says in verse 13, I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs leap from the mouths of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. This is the unholy trinity, okay? Verse 14, this is the, my focus, verse 14. It says, they are demonic spirits who work miracles and go out to all the rulers of the world to gather them for battle against the Lord on that great judgment day of God the Almighty. So we see here in Revelation chapter 16, verse 14, that Satan is literally gathering armies, demonically influenced, to try to stop the day of the Lord, the second coming. Ten kings that come to this place called Megiddo who try to stop the coming of Jesus. Let's go down a chapter to Revelation chapter Revelation 17, verse 12. It says, The ten horns of the beast are ten kings who have not yet risen to power. They will be appointed to their kingdom for one brief moment to reign with the beast. Who's the beast? Okay, we're talking about the demonic influence, right? Verse 13, They will all agree to give him their power and authority. Together they will go to war against the Lamb. Again, this is all showing that this moment, the Battle of Armageddon, where the demonic forces, literal armies, are trying to stop Jesus, the Lamb. But it's interesting, they see him as coming as a Lamb, but he's going to be coming as a Lion. But the Lamb will defeat them because, Why? He is Lord of all lords and king of all kings. And his called and chosen and faithful ones will be with him. Amen. That's the church. That's us. These, so these armies gathered against Jesus. They fight against him. But what we know is they're going to lose. That's right. 
So again, imagine the sky splits open. Jesus is coming, and they think they're going to stop him, but I'm not, I, I hope that's how he does it. I hope, like you see him coming there, you can't see the face on the screen, but I hope Jesus comes back and doesn't do anything fancy. I hope he just goes, <laughs> and they're done. Squash him, squash the bug. Actually, we're going to be talking about that in a moment. So as we, as we move down this verse, it says, He is called faithful and true. Now, th this is just, hopefully this, these are some words of comfort for us this morning. Jesus always does what is right. Amen. Right by God the Father and right by us. We, we see what we're going through right now, and you can put your trust in God because He is true. Amen. And He will do what is right by you. He is always faithful and true. You see, we all go through life, and there's going to be some people we meet that may be faithful for a season. Some people are faithful. You can always count on them. But Jesus is always faithful. Amen. You'll find people who are true. And you'll also find a lot of people who are not true. I'm just telling you this morning, you can trust Jesus. Amen. When things get tough, so many people always cho choose something comfortable for them first. What works for them. But God always chooses what's best for us. He is faithful to you. He is true to you. There are many fair weather friends, but every now and then, there's that one person who's going to show up in our lives. And I'm telling you this morning, Jesus wants to show up in our lives and show you who he is. Not just that he's coming back, but who his character is. And it says right here, he is faithful and true. There is one who is always faithful. He'll never turn his back on you. He knows who you are. He's never surprised by what you have done or by what you say. And in spite of all of that, he will be faithful. Amen. He's also true. Jesus always tells the truth. He will speak to us in love, but it is truth. This is the kind of friend that we should want to have. This is the kind of friend we have in our Lord, in our King of Kings. He is Jesus. Okay, let's uh, keep reading. The last part of the verse, it says, He judges fairly and wages righteous war. I love this, this phrase, righteous war. Because you see, the tribulation period, at this time, through the tribulation, it's no longer about grace. We are very fortunate to be living in a time right now where God is merciful and gracious to us. But when He comes back the second time, it's righteous judgment. Righteous war. Grace is over. Jesus judges and makes war with righteousness. I mean, think about this. In order to actually wage righteous war, it has to be done by somebody who's faithful and true. I mean, this verse, it just it fits together perfectly. And up to this point, Jesus has spent millennia showing grace and giving mercy to mankind. But at this point, he's coming back to judge. He's a warrior king. I mean, understand... God does take things personally in regards to evil in this world. That's right. God takes the wickedness of this world personally. There's nothing that he does not see. It's not that it doesn't affect him. It affects him very much. He's not up in heaven thinking that all the evil committed again and again and again by people is not a big deal. It is all a big deal to God. And you may be watching right now, living your life as you want to, doing things you shouldn't be doing, knowing that, living in wickedness, thinking God doesn't care. He's not doing nothing to me. He will. One day, he will. You may experience judgment in this life, but I promise you, 
you'll experience righteous judgment at the second coming. So you better get right. God is angry about the evil acts that are on this earth. Delayed judgment is not the removal of judgment. It's just delayed. You know, uh, our government is talking about, you know, delaying student loan payments for 60 days. Grateful for that one. Uh, you know, making these, these, these pauses. You still have to pay it back. Am I right? That's right. Again, the same with judgment. Jesus, during this, this, this time period of grace and mercy, is delaying it, hoping that we will turn to him and repent. But this time that we live in now can't last forever, and it won't. And, and personally, I think it's coming to a very close time of him returning. He takes it personally. An example I can think of is uh, Paul. You know, he, this is when he was still called Saul, but he's on, his on the road to Damascus in the book of Acts, and he's going to persecute and, and imprison Christians. And Jesus knocks him off his horse, and he's talking to him. I mean, he, he comes down this, this light, maybe just like that. I mean, maybe not on the horse, but Jesus comes down in light and knocks Paul off the horse. He goes, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say persecuting the church. He didn't say persecuting my followers. Him, personally. When Christians are persecuted, when the righteousness of God is disregarded, Jesus takes it personally. And there will be a reckoning. There will be a judgment. It will happen. Same thing is going to happen to the Antichrist and all his little minions in the tribulation period. All the wrongs they do against those who turn to Christ, all the wrongs that he does against Israel in this time, there will be a reckoning. The second coming will be payback. Long overdue. God will repay. You know, we're, uh, again, a, a little bit of a digression here. The Bible says we're supposed to leave room for God's wrath in our lives. In, in Romans it says we, we shouldn't pay back evil to those who do evil against us, but we should pay back evil with good. This is in Romans chapter 12. And, but look what it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. And this is specifically in the New King James Version. It says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. This is where we got this from. But rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You can take it to the bank. A day will come where it will all be repaid. He is keeping count. But isn't God merciful? Isn't he gracious? Grace is done at the rapture of the church. That time ends at that point. It's no longer grace. It comes into judgment. God's not just up in the clouds watching the evil taking place right now and not caring about it. You know, I've heard other people say, but God is love. How could a loving God do things like this? Well, let me give you an example. I don't know about you, but you, you can mistreat me, and I'll tolerate it. Mistreat my family, mistreat the people I love, and you're going to pay for it. You won't get mercy. How much more do you think God is going to be that way? He loves us more perfectly than any of us could love anybody here. And if we feel that way when our loved ones are mistreated, how do you think God will feel when his loved ones are mistreated? He takes it personally. But, you know, here's the thing. Before God judges, he gives chance after chance after chance for each and every one of us to repent. 
But if we don't repent, if we don't turn towards God, things often get so much worse. In fact, Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? God's not kind because he's weak or apathetic. He's kind because he loves us and he wants us during this time that we have right now to turn towards him. To repent, it means to, 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 to turn a 180 away from that which we shouldn't be doing and turn ourselves towards him. Amen. But there comes a point where God requires us all to decide which side are you on? His? or on the side of evil and wickedness. We all have a choice. Let's move on. Revelation 19, verse 12. So again, we're still in Revelation uh, chapter 19. Verse 12, it says, His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. His eyes were like flames of fire. Now, um, I've mentioned a couple weeks ago a word, idiom. Yeah. Remember, it, it means they're not literal eyes of fire. And I like that it's actually written here, it says, like flames of fire. We can see that. Again, my best illustration is, man, it's raining cats and dogs outside. No, it just means it's raining really hard. So there's something about his eyes that were like flames of fire. And John actually described this in, in the first chapter. When, when, when Jesus said, write the things that were, that you have seen, things that are, and things which are to come, when he described what Jesus looked like, he mentioned these flames, these eyes look like flames of fire. And, and fire has a purpose. Fire represents a purging. Fire represents an actual judgment. If you want to cleanse something or clear it out, you burn it. Amen? I love fire. I love, I love clearing brush. I mean, uh, oh, I could get into so many different stories. But again, just think of this. If you want something to be removed fast, you burn it up. It says that he has many crowns. It's interesting. You know, this is not the first time in the book of Revelation that there's somebody on a white horse coming into the world. Revelation chapter 6 the first seal, the first horse, you know, the, the, this is, talks about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. This first horse, it says that there is a rider with a crown on his head and a bow in his hand, in, in his, in his hand coming down to conquer. Some have said, well, that's Jesus right there. You know, it, it actually isn't. Uh, again, getting into the Greek, in Revelation chapter 6, verse 2, that word crown means stephanos. There you go. We've been watching Big Fat Greek Wedding. And anyways, okay, back on track. I have to remember, this isn't, it's live, but okay, here we go. Stephanos, and it means a wreath, often worn by an athletic competitor that wins. So you know how in, in uh, the, the Olympics, in the Greek Olympics, how they'd have like that, that, that olive thingamajig that goes across like this? You know, that's what it's referring to. It's referring to a, a wreath around their head for winning a match or winning a competition. And as you read through uh, Revelation chapter 6, and you can see, and also in, compile, or in correlation with that, Matthew chapter 24, you can see how this could very well be referring to the Antichrist. And I believe it is. And obviously, as, as well, Jesus doesn't come back with a bow in his hand. Actually, he doesn't even come back with a sword. We'll, we'll get that to a moment. It, it talks about what's written on his thigh. 
And so, number one, understand this, Stephanos, it's a wreath that's worn, and he comes with a bow. Now, in Revelation 19, the word for many crowns, because it says, his eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. This word in the Greek is diadem, or diademenia, which means many crowns. And it actually means this. Uh, it means it's, it's a royal crown. And having many crowns is signifying infinite majesty. So can you see the difference between the first rider on a white horse in Revelation 6, and now Jesus, who is on a white horse with many crowns on his head, he's coming back with infinite authority and dominion and majesty to be the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, all those things. It says that a name is written on him that no one understood except him. I just think that's awesome. Because there are things about Jesus that we can never fully know. I mean, for all of eternity, there are things about Jesus that we will never completely know. The depths of who God is can never fully be reached. He's omniscient. That means he's all-knowing. That doesn't mean he's learning. He already knows everything that's to be known. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. I, don't even, I, I can't even fathom how that works. Amen. And he's omnipotent. I love these omnis. All powerful. That's why he can go... <laughs> just like that. If you really think about it, we don't understand the smallest things about God. And there are things that we will never know about him. In Luke chapter 10, verse 22, it says, My Father has entrusted everything to me. No one truly knows the Son except the Father, and no one truly knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. I think it's just so cool that no one can ever know or see the end of God. This is why He's the only one true God. Okay, Revelation 19, 13, moving down. It says, He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. So this robe dipped in blood, my question is this, whose blood is it? I've always thought that this is talking about, you know, his blood. You know, because he's a sacrificial lamb. I mean, when we talk about Revelation chapter 4, as he's about to open the scroll and break the seals, it says that he, was, that he looks like a lamb who was slaughtered. And so I thought, well, this is going to be, you know, Jesus' blood on, on, on his robe. But again, in context, he's not coming back as the lamb. He's coming back as the lion, the one who's conquering. Amen. So this isn't actually his blood. This is the blood of his enemies. In fact, if you would, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 63. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. It says, Who is this who comes from Edom, from the city of Basra, with his clothing stained red? Who is this in royal robes, marching in great strength? This is, this is referring to the second coming of Christ, again. Okay? It is I, the Lord, announcing your salvation. Again, again, can you see Jesus coming this way as he's coming? He says, it is I, the Lord, who's announcing your salvation. It is I, the Lord, who has the power to save. Why are, you, why are your clothes so red? As if you have been treading out grapes. I have been treading the wine... I have been treading the winepress alone. No one was there to help me. In my anger, I have trampled my enemies as if they were grapes. <laughs> Squish. In my fury, I have trampled my foes. Their blood has stained my clothes. For the time has come for me to avenge my people, to ransom them from their oppressors. 
I was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed. So I myself stepped in to save them with my strong arm, and my wrath sustained me. His wrath sustained him. I crushed the nations in my anger and made them stagger and fall to the ground, spilling their blood upon the earth. I love the Bible. I don't know about you, I have never pressed grapes with my feet. I think it would feel pretty cool. I'd kind of like to do it now. Uh, maybe I will. I'm not going to go to California right now, but that's the place I'd imagine. Or I, I'd go to Walla Walla. Maybe, you could, maybe they have like a grape pressing class. But you know what I have done? I have stepped in mud. And I, I've, I remember as a kid, literally you could be up here and jumping into mud. And what happens? It goes everywhere. And it goes up your legs. And I mean, you're all muddy, right? This is what Jesus does to his enemies at the second coming. He has blood on his robes because he's just squishing, squishing, squishing all those who are opposed to him. See, this imagery in Isaiah 63 isn't Jesus stepping on grapes, but crushing his enemies as he returns. Literally, the blood, their blood is splatting, splattering all over his robes. Pretty gruesome. But as I say that, I want to tell you, Jesus is meek. Is that a contradiction? No. Because meekness is not weakness. It's defined as power under control. And I've, I've said this before, but the imagery here, I remember being taught this in Bible college, the imagery here is that it's as, as a rider with a bridled stallion, a wild bridled stallion that is controlled by its rider. Tons of power in this horse but it goes where it's directed. So if you're meek, it doesn't mean you're a five foot, 203 pound, scrawny little weakling. It's not weakness. You can be very strong. I mean, think about this. It's bridled power. That's why Jesus can just go and kill his enemies just like that, focusing his power where it needs to be at. So the people who disrespect God Say all kinds of evil against him. Do evil against him. And the people who think that nothing will happen because nothing ever has happened will experience the righteous judgment of Christ at his second coming. He is meek right now. He could pound each and every one of us into the dirt. But he doesn't. He's given us a chance. He's given us a chance to repent and turn to him. Revelation 19, verse 14. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. So this picture behind me, it only shows Jesus on a white horse. But there's other pictures you can see where it's Jesus on a white horse like that, and then just a vast army of believers on their white horses and white garments, following behind him. And again, you can read in, in, here in, in Revelation, Zechariah chapter 14, other places in the Bible where it describes this moment of the second coming of Christ. But why do I say it is us? Why, why is it the church? Well, if you go back just a couple verses to 19 verses seven, uh, Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8, it talks about those who have these white robes. So let's read it. It says, Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb. 
and his bride has prepared herself. Who is the bride of Christ? It's the church. It talks all about that in the Bible, in the New Testament. It says, she has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. The finest of white linen to wear. That's us. Verse 15. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. We have a whole idea now about juice flowing from a wine press, don't we? So does this mean that there is a literal sword that comes out of the mouth of Jesus? No, it doesn't. Again, idiom, metaphor. But what does it symbolize? What does it signify? In warfare, you need a sword, right? Now it's an M4, then it was a sword. If you don't know what an M4 is, Joe Biden would say AR-14, but <laughs> AR-15. An M4 is the military version of our civilian weapons that we should have. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> that we can have. Okay. Sorry. Okay. It doesn't mean a literal sword came out of his mouth, but it symbolizes the warfare that takes place. Jesus doesn't need a, a literal sword to fight. I, I was on Google, and some of the images I, I was going to put up there, it had him holding his sword. And that is theologically incorrect. Jesus doesn't need a sword. It symbolizes the warfare that's about to take place at the Battle of Armageddon against the Antichrist and those other nations. Think of this. His sword is what he says, not what he holds. In John 1.1, it says, In the beginning, the word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, For the Word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit. Can you imagine, as he comes down, and as his words are spoken, it separates body from soul in that moment, like, Phew. He doesn't need a sword. Between joint and marrow. This is what his word does. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. See, Jesus spoke things into existence in the beginning in Genesis. That also means he can speak things out of existence at the second coming. Just with a word. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as, as Jesus was about to be taken to the cross, there was these, uh, the, the, the priestly guard was coming up, and there, there was, there was a, a ton of them. These guys come up to, to arrest him and bring him before the Sanhedrin. And Jesus is there with his disciples. And, and they, they say, where is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And he walks forward and says, I am. And they go, not, not squished like grapes, but they fall backwards onto the ground. They're dazed and confused. They get back up, and he says, who are you looking for? Uh, uh, Jesus? And he said, okay, that's me, but let these others go. And his disciples left and they took him in. But he could have in that very moment, just with one word, just with saying, I am, destroyed everything. So I'm just saying, his word is powerful. Jesus can do anything he wants with one word. And it's done. So he doesn't need an actual sword out of his mouth. So in this case of the second coming, the sword, of Je the sword that Jesus uses is his word. I think it's just going to be one word. Not I am. I think it's just going to go, done. Done. 
done. Or he might say, gone, gone, gone. And the battle's over. Turn to Isaiah chapter 11. Again, Isaiah talks so much about the second coming of Christ. I mean, in, in so many places where when you read through Isaiah, and if it doesn't make sense to you, it's probably talking about Jesus. So that, that's just, as you read your Bible, that's a good way to read your Bible. If you read something in the Old Testament that you don't know, like, well, that's just weird. Where's that coming from? It's talking about Jesus. They're called Christophanies all throughout the Old Testament where it talks about him. It shows pictures of who he is and what it is to come. Because, again, what prophecy does what? Prophecy is a witness to Christ. Okay, so Isaiah chapter 11, verses 4 through 5, it says, He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word, and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. This is the second coming. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. In this case of ruling, in the case that he's ruling with an iron rod, Jesus is ruling with absolute power. He's not asking for anything anymore. He's not saying, will you please accept me as your Lord and Savior? He's saying, you will. Or, that's the choice. You submit to my Lordship or you die. What's it going to be? This is, again, this is the second coming. He's telling things as they will be. At the second coming, it will be his way only. He's done with grace. And it'll be a time of righteousness. I, I want to wrap things up. There, there's so much more we could be talking about, but um, we don't need to today. We're in this time right now, so we're, we're dealing with this, this COVID-19 crisis. We, we, we see our governments, we, we, we see uh, on the local to the national to the world level of how we're responding to this. And we think this is chaos, this is crazy. How could all this stuff happen? We need somebody to come in and take care of this situation. We need, why, why, why can't people work together? Why can't these companies? All this stuff, and in my opinion, it's just leading that much closer to what we see taking place, or that will, that will take place in the book of Revelation. I know the conspiracy is like, oh, one world government, oh, one world currency. And I'm not even really focusing on that so much, but people want a leader. People want somebody in control that can bring peace, that can bring life, that can bring order to chaos. But let me tell you something. Real, real peace, real life, will come only when there is one who is ruling with absolute righteousness. Amen. I love the fact that we live in a free country. It is. It's free. I was going to say something else, and I won't. I, I love the fact that we have a, a, a democracy as far as our government, that we have representation, and that it's just not a dictator. But you know what we really need? We need an absolute, all-powerful dictator over this world. One who is faithful, and one who is true. The one who is King of kings and Lord of lords. We need Jesus, the Christ, ruling with an iron rod. This day will come. We need Jesus. Revelation 19, 16, it says, On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of Kings, or I'm sorry, King of all kings, and Lord of all lords. Jesus is coming. He will take over all things. 
and it will be done right the first time. No mistakes. I want you just to take a moment with me, if you would. I know you're watching online. Hopefully, you're still watching. Kyler, do we have people still watching? Okay, some, some people. Maybe they'll watch it later. But I want to ask you this question. Is Jesus Lord of your life? He will come back someday as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But we have a choice right now to let him be King of Kings and Lord of Lords in our lives. In the midst of crisis like we're dealing with right now with COVID-19, economic things, wars, rumors of wars, all this stuff, Jesus can be Lord of Lords in our lives. And he can give you a peace which surpasses all understanding. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation in 2 Corinthians. Today is that day. Today is the day to be saved. Today is the day to be redeemed. And so wherever you're at right now, or if you're going to be listening to this later, possibly, I I just want to ask you that question. Is Jesus Lord in your life? And I want to encourage you that if he isn't, let that day take place. Let that happen today and this time. Better for it to happen now than have to be forced upon you at the second coming. It says in Romans chapter 10, very easily, it says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Christ is Lord, you're saved. You're put on his side. And so wherever you're at this morning, if you, if you could say, Brian, I believe that Jesus is Lord. I believe he is coming back. He is King of Kings. Wherever you're at right now, just say, Jesus, be Lord of my life. Come into my life. Take away the wickedness out of my life, the evil. I don't want to be that way anymore. I want you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. And as you say that, you're experiencing salvation. And if you did pray that prayer for the first time this morning, uh, if you would, and I think you should do this, if you're making this commitment today for the first time, write in the comments section on our Facebook live stream. I want to know who you are, because right now, again, all I see is is a phone. I don't know who I'm speaking to. But I hope that you will allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you in this moment. Because he is testifying that Jesus is Lord right now to your heart. So this morning, accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. Because there will come a day where you will have to. Better to do it now in the time of grace than when it's forced upon you because of his righteousness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. Even though um, we are spread out all over the place, we're in our homes, we're at church, I'm at church, um, but everybody else is spread out, spread out all over the place, God. You're still Lord, and we are still the body of Christ. Father, your word says where two or three are gathered, that you are with us. And we are gathered right now, so Lord, you are, your, your Holy Spirit is in our homes, you're here at our church. Uh, wherever we're at right now, God, you are with us. And I ask, Father, that we would submit our lives to your lordship and that we would keep our eyes open to see your coming soon. Father, be with each person and family in this time as we continue to experience self-isolation and all the other stuff. I ask, Father, that we would not be fearful, but that, as your word says, that we would have a sound, loving, and powerful spirit upon each of us that we might testify to others of who you are. We love you. We thank you for this time that we, that we were able to come together uh, via live stream. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless each of you. We will also have our um, 
uh, Wednesday night at 6.30. We'll go deeper into uh, today's teaching. And so hopefully we'll see you then as well on Facebook Live. Have a wonderful afternoon and God bless you.